Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Thank you, everybody, uh, again, for joining me tonight here on Golf Talk Live. We've got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be starting off here in just a moment. Uh, with a great round of Coach's Corner with uh, my uh, special guest panelists tonight, and I'll introduce those guys uh, and, and that in just a minute. And then a little bit later on in the broadcast, I'm going to be joined by my special guest tonight, Paul Albanese. Uh, he's one of the principals at Albanese and uh, Lutsky uh, Golf Course Design and, and Construction Management. He'll be joining us here uh, on the second half of the show, so I hope you'll stick around for that as well. Uh, just a quick reminder uh, as well, don't forget we are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And, of course, at the end of the show, when the outtake plays, it'll give you some other great ways that you can tune into the program as well. But I want to take this opportunity and thank everybody for joining me live here tonight uh, on the program. Uh, and also I want to, uh, as I uh, mentioned each week, uh, I want to thank our uh, sponsor of the Coach's Corner panel, GolfSwing.com. Of course, they've come back again for this season uh, I'm very, very excited to have them. They're a great uh, organization, and I'm going to tell you just a little bit about them, and I'm going to introduce the, the uh, Coach's Corner panel and bring them on, and we'll start tonight's discussion. Uh, Golfswing.com, with its cutting-edge technology, have teamed up alongside some of the best golf instructors, coaches, and swing gurus in the business. Together, they have created one of the best video teaching and training online platforms in golf. So if you're ready to break 100, 90, 80, or even 70, then join their online video academy and learn from some of the best. In addition to sponsoring the Coach's Corner segment every week, uh, I'll be posting a different instructional video tip uh, following the show. I will not be doing that tonight, unfortunately, but uh, beginning next week I'll be doing that. And I'm going to feature one of the videos from uh, their top instructors uh, after uh, the uh, Thursday night broadcast. So be sure to join GolfSwing.com today and watch, practice, and improve your game. They're a great organization. Go to GolfSwing.com, check out their online video academy uh, after the show. All right, as I mentioned, we're going to start off with Coach's Corner, and I'm going to uh, bring on uh, my, my two great panelists tonight. I'm going to tell you a little bit about them, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll get right down to, to business. Uh, first up, of course, is Sue Weger. She is a number one best-selling international author of a great book called Golf, The Last Six Inches, Change Your Brain, Change Your Game. Uh, she's also a uh, motivational speaker and peak performance coach. Uh, she's a 24-plus year LPJ Class A golf professional and owner of Uyghur Consulting, LLC. Also joining the panel is John Hughes. He's a PGA Master Professional and President of the North Florida PGA Section and a 2013 PGA of America Horton Smith Award recipient, as well as one of the top 30 instructors in Golf Tips Magazine. So, John and Sue, uh, welcome, guys, to uh, Coach's Corner Panel. Thanks, Thanks for having us, Ted. All right, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Um, all right, so we're going to talk tonight about a few different things. Um, and, and one of the things we're going to talk about specifically is golf instruction. And the first question, and Sue, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with you, uh, go with ladies first tonight, and, uh, and then, John, uh, I'll get your thoughts as well on the, on the topic. 
Um, the first question right out of the gate, Sue, is this. Where do you see the evolution of golf instruction in the next five or even ten years from today? Well, that's a great question, Ted. I I really think that, you know, it's kind of turning itself more into um, more of a holistic um, instruction. So you're going to do more with the, you know, mind-body physicalness of of being like a whole body uh, type of an instruction, type of a mental, mental, uh, method. I won't say method because I don't like method, the word method, but... Um, you know, I'm a strong believer in you show up as an authentic self-person, your skill's going to be so much, much better. I think you're going to see more, I, you're seeing more, um, you know, mental uh, coaches coming into play, you know, psychologists, um, you know, peak performers. Um, but the whole thing is I think you have to, you know, you have to interrelate the mind and the body because there is no mind without the body and there's no body without the mind. So I think golf instruction is just coming uh, into more of a holistic um, approach. And that's what, I mean, that's how I teach um, in the sense that, right. you know, helping people becoming their best, you know, their their best selves. And I hope that that's where we're going. You know, I know technology is driven a lot more toward mechanics and more toward um, the physical stuff that's going on out there in the golf instructional um, industry. Um, but I think there's a really good balance, and I think you'll see a lot more teachers and instructors going more toward, you know, more holistically uh, with the mind and body training and helping each other, you know, collaboratively. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, well said, too. Um John, you know, we're, we've seen over the last, uh, you know, several years, we've seen a, a big introduction of more and more, um, you know, innovative video techniques and things like that. Uh, and as Sue mentioned, you know, we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, other technology being introduced into the game. Uh, but at the same time, we're also seeing a trend going back to some of the basics, uh, basic fundamentals, for an example. We're seeing more of the the, the general basic, uh, you know, teaching methods that we, we remember from, you know, even 20, 30 years ago starting to come back into the fold. And I think part of the reason for that is the fact that with this sort of insurgent over the last probably 20 years with a lot of technology and a lot of, uh, you know, gadgetry, I think it's, even though it's helped in a lot of ways in some areas, I think it's also been detrimental um, to good teaching because I think it takes away from the actual student and gets more into numbers and, and, you know, that sort of thing. So what do you, where do you see golf instruction in your uh, view the next, uh, you know, five or even 10 years? Well, you and I have talked about this in the past and, and Sue brings up a good point of holistic, more mind body. Uh, when you're talking about the past 20 years, I think what we've done is come full circle where, 30, 40 years ago, uh, even 50 years ago with a Hogan or a Nicholas or a Palmer and the phrase, hey, we dug it out of the dirt. It was, it was a lot of trial and error without the technology, understanding the correlation of what a good shot feels like and what it does, and trying to use your own brain to figure it out. Uh, the technology has taken a lot of that away, as well as taking the playing, the learning of playing the game. Uh, off the table for a lot of people, making it very mechanical, uh, getting the way number-wise sometimes. 
it's inevitable that technology is going to keep going and going and going. So I think what you're going to see is is a two-barrel approach for those people who are still, I'm going to cut, use the term brick and mortar, like myself and Sue, we're out there every day grinding it out on the on the range. You're going to see a little bit more holism to the approach of what we do, helping understand the sports psychology to a, a bit of fitness, bringing in experts that can augment what we know from a swing philosophy standpoint of view being that there is no right or wrong, it's correct for the person who's there and we can bend and flex with it. The other barrel is going to be totally technology-driven to the point where it wouldn't surprise me in 10 or 15 years there's a PGA Tour winner who has never, ever met personally, face-to-face, their instructor. It's been done totally through digital technology, the Internet, videos back and forth. You'll see it totally like that. It wouldn't surprise me to see it that way. We're sort of going that route with some technology and some bigger companies out there uh, that are trying to focus their efforts that way. At some point, though, those two barrels have got to meet in the middle. I I can't see a PGA Tour player who's never met their instructor not meeting them after the win. And uh, once they win and they meet each other, that's when it all again comes full circle once again. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I, I agree with that as well. Well said. And I and also think, too, guys, that, you know, one of the the problems that I've seen for a long time, and I think this goes to your point, Sue, is is the direction that instruction is going, or certainly a lot of instructors now, is they're trying to isolate the individual as opposed to lumping everybody into the teaching box and say, okay, well, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. I think they're trying to get into the minds of the individual and addressing and sort of customizing, if you will, or tailor-making a lesson plan to that individual because we all are uniquely different, and everybody plays the game differently. Everybody thinks differently. We might certainly have some similarities along the way, but I think overall uh, I think we are individual human beings, and I think as instructors, we have to be able to adapt to that and be able to say, hey, okay, I'm going to listen to you, and I'm going to work something that's going to help you become a better player and not just sort of lump you into that, uh, as I said, into that box. And we've talked about that before uh, here on the program. Is that was, If I was to have a criticism, I think that was something that has been done for many, many years, and I think instructors and I think the industry is starting to change a little bit and recognize uh, more of the individuality, and as you said, to more of a holistic uh, approach to to uh, golf instruction. Um, great answers, guys. I, I really like uh, some of the the thoughts and input into that. Um, John, take a deep breath because I'm going to reverse the order of of, um, of you two here. Um, what about the game itself? Let's let's get away from uh, instruction for a second and let's talk about the game. What do you see changing? Now you've already mentioned a little bit here on the pro level. Uh, but what about the amateur level? What are some things and the way we play the game? Are we going to see, you know, for a long time we've seen these great, beautiful golf courses out there that have been uh, built and designed, um, and that's great for the low handicap or the professionals, but for a lot of amateurs it's very daunting and overwhelming. Are we going to see a different trend in how the game is played, um, again, maybe five, ten years down the road, with our amateur golfers? I think what you're going to see, and we're, we're beginning to see uh, to the start of it with PGA Junior League and 
some copycat, uh, and I mean that in a very complimentary way, copycat leagues for adults where it doesn't matter how often you've played, if you've played at all, that you're welcome, you're you're invited to play. It becomes a little more social uh, than it may have been in the past 20 or so years, and that's going to be the beginning of the growth of golf from a not only a player development and grow the numbers, but someone deciding, hey, I, I want to take up golf a little bit more seriously, whether it's a serious hobby, they want to play competitive at their club or at an amateur level. I think we're going to see a renaissance of that to a certain degree from a social level, but at the same time with Play Golf Now and, and some of the other entry-level programs, as well as the new rules that we've seen the USGA put out there. Still some scrutiny there on the pro level, I get it. But I think if you really read into this, what, what we're all trying to say is you're welcome. You don't have to play by these staunch rules that have been around for 400 years. Here's a, here's a smaller field. Here's a smaller, uh, a, a bigger cup. Here's a smaller hole as far as length. Uh, it's okay to play from various distances. It's okay to make up your own rules just to keep people involved, having them have, having them have fun, just like Top Golf does. They invent their own rules that way, and they're, they're successful in most, if not all, the markets that they're in. Uh, you're going to see that really create a groundswell, the, the basis to creating our, the next generation and the future generations of the competitive golfers we see. But I also believe we're going to see some groundbreaking programs that come out of this. Uh, one of them is a good friend of mine, Brendan Elliott, who's teaching three-year-olds. When was the last time anybody accepted a, uh, a group clinic or even an individual lesson of a three-year-old? 20 years ago, that was taboo. It just wasn't thought of. So a lot of this new avant-garde right. thinking is going to bring about new programs, new opportunities to play, relaxed rules, just like we do when we are learning other sports as a newbie, uh, as well as still the opportunity from an amateur standpoint of view to take advantage of the R&D being done by all these companies, whether they're technology-based, equipment-based, or anything in between, uh, there's going to be a nice bridge versus the gap that's been perceived in the past. Right. Well said, John. Um, you know, Sue, one of the things that I think that, you know, for a lot of players, and certainly some of the complaints that I hear is because of time restraints, everybody's busy with life in general. They don't have four, four and a half hours to play. Are we going to see a change in how the game is approached? We already have certainly seen it in some uh, respects, and as John pointed out, some of the other uh, organizations like Top Golf and that are offering uh, a different um, uh, avenue, if you will, into the market um, for those that maybe aren't quite ready or, or maybe want something different to, to play uh, or do. But are we going to see uh, a change on how we approach the game and how we play the game as amateurs out there? Um, and maybe even as professionals, as uh, and I'm, I'm certainly talking about tour players in this particular case, are we going to see a difference in how they play the game? Um, well, I'm going to say to you is I hope so, because um, we need the changes, because the demographic of players are changing. 
Um, you know, we have the youth movement. You have the LPGA Girls Golf Program that is just exploding. Um, and you, you, you're going to want to have a carryover for that type of demographic. So what does that really mean to the golf course owners? Um, you know, in, in the sense of, you know, do we want to have nine-hole tournaments rather than, you know, nine-hole leagues? Are you going to have six-hole tournaments for the juniors? You know, you know, they, there's such good things, programs out there like Operation 36 building such great momentum with um, team building, if you, if you want to put it that way, kind of like other sports. And I think that's what helps with engaging other people into golf is that it is a social, for most amateurs, it is social. Um, I don't know what the, the statistics are in regards to if you look at how many amateurs are playing in, um, you know, state association golf tournaments versus how many amateurs are just playing for fun. It'd be interesting to, you know, do a study on that based on, um, you know, everyone that uh, has a membership with uh, USGA, for example. <laughs> um, but I think um, what I hope to see in the sense that the golf course owners take ownership to that, that new demographic and that new thought of, you know, let's create some new uh, and different ways to play the game. Because we just talked about how individual each person is, you know, everybody, right. everybody has a different why, everybody has a different why, why they want to play the game. And if they don't have the opportunity to express that why, they're going to leave the game. I mean, we know that, you know, like women is the fastest yeah. growing. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, the women are the fastest growing. Yes, they going are. Into Actually, the game. you're. Um, but unfortunately, they're the ones that are leaving the game too because they don't feel as welcome um, within that, um, you know, within that realm. There's, an, I think, there's a piece missing there um, that um, that the golf industry definitely could, you know, again, there's piece. I think there's pieces missing on every demographic, whether or not it's a junior, whether or not it's a woman, whether or not it's a younger player, or if it's a younger um, millennial. Um, so be it. Or even as we, we know, the baby boomers are starting to grow out of the game because of age and because of, you know, physical ailments or whatever that may be. Um, and I think that's why we have to learn or we have to just look at all of that and say, these are all of our players. How can we serve them the best with every, every, different, every yeah. different demographic? Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. And, you know, the other thing, Sue and, and John, is, is this. Um, just this past Tuesday, um, my good friend, LPJ professional Cindy Miller and I, of course, we host uh, the Women of Golf show on Tuesday mornings. And we had a great young lady, Cindy Clanton, who uh, just recently won on the Symmetra Tour, the uh, 2019 uh, Murphy USA uh, Eldorado Shootout. Uh, she was on the show, mm -hmm. and she talked about some of the very things um, that you both really had mentioned. But you also mentioned, too, about education. Um, for instance, you know, educating players uh, or individuals on how to work towards maybe playing collegiate golf. Um, a lot of them don't understand that. Obviously, somebody that's grown up on the golf course and has aspirations to play at whatever level have been introduced. But the average person doesn't understand some of the opportunities and the doors that golf can open up for them. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they all have – you know, visions of grandeur of playing out on the LPGA or, or, or even the PGA Tour um, necessarily. Uh, Maybe other uh, business opportunities that could open up later on. But I think we need as an industry to do a better job of educating uh, the younger folk, if you will, 
of not just playing in junior uh, golf events, but understanding uh, the different stepping stones and opportunities that golf can create for you later on in life or even as a junior. Um, Again, not just necessarily playing in uh, competitive golf, uh, but just, you know, getting exposed to the game. And I think the, the other thing is, to touch on your point, uh, Sue, real quick, as you talked about the, uh, the women's, uh, especially the younger uh, women uh, coming into the game, uh, you're exactly right. They're the largest demographic. I think the age, uh, and, and don't quote me on this, I think it's around 13 uh, upwards of early 30s is that uh, sort of that demographic uh, that's coming in of young females, um, but they're leaving yes. just as quick. Uh, and I yes, think the percentage, correct. if I remember correctly, this was put out by yeah, this was put out the last couple of years uh, by the Na- National Golf Foundation. Uh, they're hovering around 33 to 35 percent of new golfers coming into the game. That is a huge percentage of of mm-hmm. uh, you know new golfers coming in in a demographic. It's a big big number, and I think that the industry as a whole needs to really pay attention because if they're exiting. Uh, even at half of that pace, that's a big number as well. Yeah. Uh, and they need to pay attention, yeah. they need to understand why is that happening. You know, it's great we're getting them in, but why are we losing potentially half or maybe even more? Who knows? Um, that's a, something that, that I think the industry has to take a close look at. Um, but great answers, guys. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, one of the things, too, I think that is important, and, and obviously – uh, again, for golfers, and Sue, I'm going to I'm going to go to you this time. Uh, but for for our amateur golfers, I think one of the, the problems that they have is not really setting goals. So, what are some good goals if you were to be working with? And we're going to use a, a new student here, somebody that walks into the facility you're working in, or maybe gives you a call and says, "I'm interested in taking up the game. I've never really played, or maybe I, you know, hit hit the ball a few times when I was a little kid, but I haven't touched a club." And, in a few years, how would you, what discussion would you have with them and, and creating some goals and a plan, if you will, about becoming uh, somebody engaged in golf and taking lessons and that sort of thing? What would you do? What were some of the goals that you might help them to set? The first thing I would do is I would ask them, it's like, okay, why, you wanna, why do you want to play? Because I like to know, you know, where they're coming from. Do they, are, are they looking, because as you know, um, a lot of people have different expectations when they come into like, well, I want to play with my husband or uh, as a, as a parent, they call me and uh, one of their juniors thinking about going on the high school golf team. So it's kind of, obviously it's individualized. So it's, it's going to be different for each, each person. But um, what I like to do with beginners, I like to find out why they're playing. Um, I like to introduce them to the game itself, which means I actually take them on the golf course even before our first lesson just to get them familiar with, okay, here's, if you may, if you will, here's your basketball court if you're a basketball player. This is what you're going to be playing on, you know, and then just kind of get them, get them comfortable in the mm-hmm. sense that, all right, this is, because as we know, newer players, many times they just, the first thing they do is like, okay, let's go talk grip, aim, stance, posture. Well, the swing is just a very small part of the game. So I like to introduce mm-hmm. them to the whole entire game. And then we, we actually, I start with short game. We work on, um, we work away from the hole. So we work on um, setup and, and putting and get, and just get comfortable with their setup and, and let them anchor that, those basic fundamentals with putting, chipping, and pitching. And then we just gradually move away and we work a little bit, um, giving them goals every week in between lessons 
So I always say to them, as like in between lessons, okay, how many times can you come out and do some training on your own? I don't really like to use the word practice as much with some people because training is something that you're learning. Practicing is something, you, I, my opinion, practicing is something that you already have and you just need to maintain it. Um, so we talked about the difference of that because it's very crucial on what they're doing in between sessions as well. Versus if they don't do anything between sessions, then like, well, we kind of have to kind of start over and backtrack a little bit. So there's there's less progression. So I give them, you know, goals and a little bit of golf homework in between their sessions and um, for newer players. And like I said, we start with short game and move on from there. But I like to introduce them to the game right away and target because the golf is game is a game of target. It's not about just swing. Right. You're exactly right. Well said. Um, John, how much is, is too much information? You know, and, and I'm, I want to take this question that I just gave Sue, and I want to massage a little bit just to make it a little bit different for you. But how much is too, inf too much information? When we get a new student coming in and, and we want them to, to really, you know, gravitate and hopefully take up the game a little bit more seriously at some point, um, how much is too much information um, and, and are we sometimes guilty of overwhelming our students with that very thing? Uh, I, I think we definitely are, uh, it's especially if you're not paying attention to what the student's telling you. Uh, it's as simple as the questions that Sue was talking about. Why are you playing? What are, what are your goals? What, what's your practice time? What's your life priority system? Those kinds of things. And, uh, if you're not asking those questions, but more importantly, really listening to the answers, you're not going to know as an instructor how much or how little to give them. Uh, and sometimes they'll surprise you. I had two absolute beginners this past Monday, never held a golf club. They're close to retirement. We spent an entire day on the golf course. They loved it simply because I was listening and I was told that several different times. It's one of the best compliments I can get. I'm not here to ring my bell so much as it really answers your question. If you're listening to right. what, the, what the person in front of you really, really wants, that will provide you a guidepost. It'll provide you a margin of error per se as to how much information you're willing to take in. Uh, just like Sue, ask them a bunch of questions. And uh, unlike Sue, I gave them their choice because they're they're a little bit younger, and they had been to Top Golf, so all they knew was the full swing. So I gave them choices all day. Uh, what do you want to do next? Uh, we've done this for too long. We need to move on to something else, and here's why. Oh, really? Tell me more. Uh, and it was all within the confines of what their long-term plans were. The short term was just to get the spark, to, to go home and have a, have a passion for the game. I just heard from them today. They're here on vacation all week. They actually took a suggestion and went and visited a, a nine-hole executive course. Only played three holes, but they walked the rest of it. And the reason why they played three, only three holes, they've been tired from all week to having a vacation. So <laughs> did I give them too much information? I gave them a lot, but it wasn't too much based on what their goals were. I think as a student, you have to guard against it and tell us exactly in more detail what your plans are. And you've got to ask us questions 
about our background with your type of skill level, whether you're highly experienced or just beginning. You're just as responsible to us as we are to you uh, because sometimes if you don't give us the right information and you do have someone like Sue or myself listening to you, we're, we're off the chart because you haven't provided us enough of that information. I, I'm always asking people, do you have questions of me? Do you need more information uh, about me, about what we're going to do? Uh, I'm constantly doing that within that first session simply so I can be on their page. But it's a dialogue. It's not a one-way street. When students realize that right. and you have a good instructor that understands that, you'll you'll give the right in, amount of information 99% of the time. Right. You know, something that I learned, and, and you know, really if you think about uh, even as instructors, um, if you sort of water it down a little bit, we're all in, in a sense salespeople. You know, we're there to, to sell an idea uh, or a concept of what we feel um, doing this or doing that is going to help uh, somebody or is going to benefit somebody. And one of the things that I learned years ago uh, in my earlier sales days, if you will, is framing my questions in such a way as to get the um, other person that I'm um, conversing with to open up. In fact, one of the, the worst things that you can ever do, even as an instructor in golf, is to ask yes or no questions. Because it doesn't, as you just pointed out, John, it doesn't get them to really open up and, and, and create a dialogue. It's, you know, it's just, well, yes or, or no or, or maybe. And you always want to frame your questions in such a way as to get the other individual to open up. And this is something that I think that, uh, again, going to back to Sue's point a little bit earlier on, is by creating a more holistic uh, approach instead of just – you know, here's what we're going to learn today, and, and here's how you grip the club, and here's how you're doing this, a very um, sort of non-personal way and approach. I think a more holistic way is to really understand and get to know the individual that you're dealing with and find out what some of their uh, concerns might be as far as uh, learning the game. Maybe they don't want to look foolish out in the golf course. Maybe they don't want to look, you know, that they're, they're not uh, apt in, in, in doing certain things. So they want to, you know, they want to feel comfortable. So Understanding and asking the right questions sometimes can open those doors uh, and help us as instructors to uh, to better um, help, I guess, in the long run for our students. Sue, I'm going to take something. Uh, I'm going to come to you now, Sue, and I'm going to take something out of your book, uh, which is a great book, by the way, for those of you uh, listening to the show. Uh, it's called Golf: The Last Six Inches: Change Your Brain, Change Your Game, and I believe it's available at Amazon.com. So uh, after the show, be sure to visit and uh, and get yourself a copy if you haven't already done so. But I found it very interesting, and I, I, I love the book, by the way, Sue. But uh, I want to talk about very quickly, and then, John, I want to get you to throw some your thoughts in this as well. But Chapter 2, you talk about, it's, it's titled, How Thoughts, Emotions, and Actions Dictate Your Golf Shots. Explain that, that uh, statement or that phrase, if you will, and then maybe give us a little bit more information about the chapter without giving everything away. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all know that, you know, your brain works overtime. We have a we have a subconscious we have a conscious thought and we have a subconscious thought. And your in your subconscious, um, you have these you'll have this thought. So for a typical golfer, they'll walk up to a golf shot and they'll either say, Oh, I got this or I don't have this and you, usually then they'll if they don't have it, meaning, Oh man, I'm a little bit afraid, they have this little story in their head 
and they have these thoughts that start coming out like, well, what if I, let's say a beginner, what if I miss it, what if I whiff it, okay? That is going to create an emotion, and that emotion usually isn't positive. It usually goes into a, a negative emotion, and those negative emotions drive your actions. So it's, it goes in a full circle. So if you have a positive thought, Think about what kind of emotion will come up with a, a positive thought. So if you have a, a golfer that says, oh, yeah, I've got this. So how do you think their body's going to feel? How do you think their emotions are going to be standing over that golf shot? And they're like, oh, I know I have this. You know, think of it, I call it like your mulligan brain. We all know what a mulligan is. Right. It's like, kind of like a free swing. And, <laughs> and what happens usually? what happens usually with a mulligan shot? Usually you do better. Why? Because you create an emotional right. state that's different than, than the shot before. And that's what we mean by thoughts, emotions, and actions. You have a thought, that thought creates an emotion, that emotion dictates kind of your decision of what kind of an action you're going to take. For example, I'm staring down the middle of the fairway and I've got water on the right and sand on the left. So my focus is on the sand and in the water. My focus isn't in the fairway. So we focus on what we don't want and what kind of emotions are going to come up with that. Usually fear, my body gets tense, then I make the wrong decision because I'm going to manipulate my swing because I don't want to hit the water and I don't want to hit in the bunker. So it it, it works, they work really together. And um, I teach my players in regards to thoughts, actions, and or thoughts, emotions, and actions is we have, we go on the range and we talk about that. It's like, well, what thought are you having? You know, I, the, one of the questions I ask all the time is, what's your favorite club? And what's your not-so-favorite club? And I just asked them, well, what's the difference between these two clubs? They're both golf clubs. The difference is the emotion and the thoughts you have behind them. Therefore, your actions are different with each of these clubs. You know, they're both, whether or not the 6-iron or 7-iron doesn't matter, but what what power are you giving that club that you don't like? Think about that versus when you're, you absolutely love going and pulling, maybe it's your 7-iron, that's my favorite go-to club. What kind of emotions or thoughts are you having with that? Therefore, what kind of an action of golf swing, you just you have freedom. You're just like, oh, I can do this. And your body changes, your physical changes, your state changes, your emotions change. Because you're like, oh, this is my favorite club. I'm creating this emotional state that, oh, yeah, I'm free, I can do this. Versus you stand and go up there and like, well, the driver's not, maybe not that it's not my favorite club. So automatically those thoughts drive some emotions, and those emotions drive your actions, and that's what we mean by that, that what we call triad of thoughts, emotions, and actions. Does that well make sense? Well said. Thank you, Sue. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, and, John, just to play off that a little bit, I know that, that Sue's obviously covered uh, uh, covered it very well, but, you know, this, I think, goes to um, – you know why so many people have a difficult time taking that that game, if you will, that they've been hitting golf balls out in the range. Now they got to take it out into the golf course because there's not, you know, and certainly there are some exceptions. There are some golf courses that are uh, the ranges are, are very similar, you know, with bunkers and, and maybe even a little pond out there. But for the most part, they're pretty flat. They're pretty, you know, uh, bland, if you will. Um, so you're not really getting true course experience. So this really what what Sue's talking about here is really training your brain to think positively. So what's, what's in your head um, is now going to translate in how you react to those emotions. 
Um, and this is why I think so many people have a difficult time transitioning from the range out to the golf course. Tell us a little bit about that, John, and, and what you do specifically to help that transition period. Well, what, what Sue said, I, I can't say any better from a, uh, pardon me, Sue, for saying it this way, from an academic standpoint of view. And when I have somebody in front of me that that is very studious and academic, I'll I put my own little twist in there. I use my own little words. But at the end of the day, uh, what I tell people is very simple, that the brain only has a definition for a do directive, D-O. It does, it, it's, uh, it's dictionary of definitions. If you look through it, there is not a definition for the word not, N-O-T. Uh, when was the last time as a beginner you stood up on a tee box at a forced carry over the water and you say, don't hit it in the water, and what do you end up doing? As Sue said, it's an emotion. That emotion is tied to a due directive. And what do you yeah. do? You hit it in the water. So uh, what I'm doing out on the golf course, whether it's uphill, downhill, side hill, lies, whether dealing with a shot that is fearful to somebody, uh, having understanding of target orientation and being reactive to a target is always about a due directive and understanding that it's the task in front of you. Uh, a very common phrase is one shot at a time. Can we take the one shot at a time and apply it to something that you do, there's that word again, every day, whether it's personal or professional, Everybody has a task list of some type. I have a task list every day before I get up to go to work or to work out of my house if that's what I'm doing. There's, and it's a specific task list that's different. But if I achieve those tasks, I achieve the ultimate goal. So I try to take the emotion out, even though it is full of emotion. I don't disagree with Sue. What I'm asking people to do, let's put it in a little bit more mundane way. So it's not work, but at the same time, it's still enjoyable. Understanding that a computer and how a computer was brought together was patterned after the way the human brain works, and that is due directives. And if, if, you, if you can follow that and buy into that, it doesn't matter what kind of lie you have. It doesn't matter what kind of situation you have. You'll play more towards your potential from that strategic mind uh, decision-making standpoint of view, you'll play smarter with the current skills you have. Mm -hmm. Well said. And, and, you know, I think this also goes to, um, you know, when we see a player, uh, again, whether it's an amateur player or particularly out on tour, and suddenly their game becomes derailed. A lot of times, you know, it, it's certainly not that they're, um, their physical skill has suddenly diminished so much that they don't know how to play anymore. More often than not, um, they've had something that has derailed their thought process, which ultimately affects their emotions. And now they're out there, and instead of, um, you know, and I, I'm going to use an example that, uh, that Cindy Miller often says, is they suddenly get into a protect mode. Uh, instead of, you know, uh, playing a little bit more aggressively and, and, and playing in that frame, suddenly because they've had a few bad holes 
and especially if they're in the lead, now they're trying to protect. They're afraid of losing any more strokes and falling out of lead. So they change their thought process, which ultimately changes their emotions. And I think this is what hurts, right, Sue? I mean, I think that's what hurts a lot of golfers is their emotions change at some point as a result of what's been happening, and now they, they, they don't Absolutely. know how to recover. So that's – right. So so how do you how do you deal – Let's and see, I want to go back to you about that just very quickly, then I'm going to move on. When that happens – with a player, regardless of level, and, and you can use either one as an example, whether a professional or an amateur, when that takes mm-hmm. place, what can they do to get themselves back on track? What can they say to themselves after having a, a bad hole or a bad string of holes to get themselves back on track? I teach my players I am positive statements, which means, and, and there's an exercise with that, so that you, just, you don't just say something positive. They have to anchor it, and they have to totally believe it. Um, so um, I teach my uh, really good players that when there's when all of a sudden something kind of goes awire on the golf course, is they go back to their I am statements because their I am statements is who they are as a person, who they are. For example, like the an I am statement would be is I am a loving I'm a loving brother, I am a, a loving husband, I am whatever it is. Um, and we have a core. We have core I am statements that are positive because that uplifts them to, um, so they can recognize who they are as a person, so they can show up differently instead of worrying that on the other side of the coin, like wow, I'm not playing very good. I'm having a bad day. My, you know, the story goes negative. So they have to learn how to change their state immediately. And how you do that is you just go back. You go back inside and you, you know, you're like, hey. Who am I? Who am I as a person, not as a player? Because if I show up as a true, authentic person who I know who I am, which means I'm in love with myself, I know who I am, then I can start the process and I kind of reset myself, and then I can start over. And that's what I teach a lot of my players to do is we we, we work on the I am statements um, and we drill down to really to really understand who you are as a person because that person is the one that has to show up over that ball, not the golfer, the person. Right, right, exactly. Um, John, I want to tackle something a little bit differently here, uh, and this is specifically about play, uh, and, and particularly about par fives. You know, par fives are, are are great holes because they really provide some great scoring opportunities. However, having said that, um, not purely because of their length, obviously the long the longest holes in the golf course. Um, but they they can provide some of the best scoring opportunities, but at the same time uh, can also uh, derail. I mean, I've seen people go out there and, and shoot eight nines and tens on a par five because they're not really their strategy. So how do we play par fives smarter? As an amateur golfer that's maybe, uh, again, let's use some of our higher handicap golfers just so that we can put some parameters around this. Um, those are some great scoring opportunities. How can we play our par fives smarter on the golf course to increase some of those scoring opportunities and help to build some confidence along the way? One is understanding the yardages that each club does and playing within your means to those yardages. Uh, Very simply, you're 240 yards away, and you don't have a club that goes 240 yards. You have your three wood out 
and that goes 200 and puts you in a position 40 yards short. That could mean you're in a fairway bunker or even worse, what's called no man's land. You don't have a shot for that. You don't have a chip shot, a pitch shot, a bump and run. You're uncomfortable even hitting a putter through the, through the fairway there. Uh, that's knowing the means and picking the right club. I mean, that's the very first thing to understand about par fives, and that dictates how aggressive you are playing the par fives. Why not lay back to a yardage that you can play aggressively with, with that favorite golf club, if you have one, or if you're doing a lot of practice and, and you know that there are certain, there's a certain yardage range, 100 to 125, let's say, that you're really deadly accurate with, wouldn't it make sense to play a club to that yardage if you didn't have a yardage to, to make the green. For those people who are just, you know what, give me the big dog, I'm going for it. Where are you putting it? What's the trend of your ball flight? Is it right to left? Is it left right to left or left to right? Where's predominantly the miss you make with that club uh, based on where you're aiming? Is it right? And what does that call for with that particular uh, hole? Or is it left? And if you go left, you're in the most penal position, maybe out of bounds or, or in a, a water hazard. The, those kinds of things, it's all decision-making. It's not necessarily performance. In particular on par fives is when I introduce the theory of grading yourself on decisions versus performance. And that if you can provide yourself a, a grade of A for decisions, that provides a little bit of margin of error for performance. That if you make that little bit more conservative club choice, it allows you to go ahead and make a more freer swing. You're not, you're not putting yourself under duress to create a shot that you're maybe not capable of doing at that particular point. And that's a strategy that, whether you're an absolute beginner to a tour player remains constant. That's the basis of what you see on TV with these players. If they don't have the shot, their, their livelihoods on the line, you're not going to see them do that unless it's Sunday at a major and they're within a couple of strokes. They have to take some risks. Do you really as an amateur have to take some risks? The answer is yes. And you have to learn from those answers of yes. Did, did you, did you succeed or fail? But the real key is there's a difference between dumb and stupid. Dumb doesn't know any better. So one or two times trying it, no big deal. After one or two times trying it, if it doesn't work, then you're making a stupid mistake. Go back and play a little bit more conservative with what your means are and understanding the yardages that you can play. You're going to, bottom line, you'll, at worst, you'll make par on a par five. It does provide you another scoring opportunity, but you got to learn to par it and get around there first before those birdies and eagles can start happening. Right. Great answer. Um, See, so yeah, I wonder if we could even maybe even simplify it even, even more. Not, uh, John, that was a great answer, but I'm wondering if we can even approach this even from a simpler standpoint. And I'll give you a quick example, and then I want to get your thoughts on this as well. Um, you know, most of our golfers, not certainly at all, but a lot of golfers go out there and they think for some reason in their mind, and again, this goes back into the head, um, they think they've got to get to those par fives and two. So, again, as, as John pointed out, they, they bring up the driver and they, they got to, boy, they got to belt it down the fairway. 
and then hope that they can get it within uh, a good range that they can get there with uh, either uh, a fairway wood or, or a longer club or hybrid or something that they've got, whatever they're using in their bag. And more often than not, unless they're a pretty skilled player, it's just not going to happen. So I'm wondering if it makes more sense. Again, keeping in mind that the par five is really a perfect opportunity. Not necessarily, when I say scoring, it doesn't necessarily mean birdie. It just means preventing worse than par. That's your best opportunity. Because most people, if they really play smart, can par pretty much all of the par fives. But they've got to use a little bit of strategy. And what I try to instill in my students is forget about going for it in two let's get you there in three because most amateurs if you look at the stats will two putt a good many of the greens so if i can get them on there in three and in good shape they've got two putts to make their par what do you think about that strategy is that something that you think a lot of amateurs could adopt to maybe help as a starting point and then obviously as they develop and, and get better uh, become better golfers down the road, then we can, you know, finesse them into being a little bit more aggressive. But is that a, maybe a smarter approach to playing a par five? I think that, again, it depends on the player, but in regards to par five sure. and, and what we call what we call pars is, you know, it, in regards to a par, what really what really does that mean? That's a score that someone – for example, who a scratch player should par out, correct? So I think that right. you just have to again, you need to educate your player. So if they're a 25 handicap and they're shooting into par five, my strategy is is I have them change their scorecard all the time. I'm like, I want you to take your scorecard out, and we're going to make your own par across this nine holes, for example, and whether or not it's a par five or a par four. Um, and and right. that way their mind their mindset is coming just like okay, well if I can get there in three and four four on a par five, and I can two putt I'm still going to be around par, and whether or not it's right. maybe a five or a six we just you're, like you're saying Ted you don't want them to get a seven or eight or nine etc. Um, right. But again it's just a little bit of a, of a mindset and you know to help the players understand who they are as a player and help them strategize who they are as a player and help them strategize better when they go out and play, whether it's a par three or a par four or a par five. Um, I just think we need to educate the, our players a little bit better and, and help them, um, you know, uh, fit, fit within the, the, the game of golf as who they are as players. And I think they'll have better experiences that way. Um, so I just, right. I, my strategy a lot of times is I just have them change the scorecard and I say, this is where a professional would score. So let's put where you, what, 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 what we are looking for for you, whether or not, it's, you know, if a 10 handicap, so let's look at that and just, and, and let them be nice to themselves about it. instead of like, well, I should be, sh you know, <laughs> shooting par. <laughs> well, let's be kinder to ourselves right. around the golf course a little bit. <laughs> Well, and, and it, well said, Sue. And, and you know, th th that's a great point. You know, again, this goes back to what we talked about earlier about the individual. Um, you know, yeah. we want to individualize the golfing experience. Now, par five, the, the number five, can be a goal, can be something that they can strive yeah. to. But in the meantime, they're going to make their own, as you said, their round par, uh, you know, number is what they're going to have in their head for now. Um, and maybe 
a five or, or even a you know if they're fortunate to get a birdie on a par five is something that they can shoot mm-hmm. for down the road. But you're you're exactly right. The reason why I pose that is because a lot of people, I get it all, uh, John Sue. It goes back to course strategy. Um, you know, yeah. Nicholas always said that the reason he played so well, and and I don't want to use the word dominate because. You know, he certainly did have his moments where he did dominate the golf course. Uh, but what he said was it was his ability to think his way around the golf course that made him yeah. successful, as particularly in winning the majors. It was certainly not his ball striking. I mean, he was he could hit the ball a mile, uh, and he could be very accurate when he needed to be. But it was how he thought his way, and he his, what it did is it allowed him to develop a confidence so that when he got on a golf course that he knew that fit his eye, that he's played, particularly if he's played it before, he knew what he was capable of doing. He already had the number in his head. Okay, this is what I'm going to shoot today. Now, whether that happened or not, it, you know, it is really irrelevant. In his mind, he had already committed and accepted, this is what I know I can do on this golf course. So again, it goes in. So his yeah. emotions were already in check. Where it yeah. didn't work for him was really on two occasions when he went to a golf course that didn't fit his eye that he knew he couldn't control. That was one area. And also early in his career, uh, he went and I don't remember the gentleman's name off the top of my head, uh, but they tried to, to get him to change and become more of a drawer of the ball, which of course went against the grain for him and he didn't have a very good Mm -hmm. season. So he quickly went back to his old way and obviously went on to win uh, many more majors. So, again, it goes to your point uh, even further, Sue, and that is what goes on and what we say to ourselves in our, in our minds affects our emotions and ultimately is going to affect how we play the game. And you cannot, um, you cannot take that across the board with everybody and expect the same result. Everybody thinks differently. Everyone has different emotions. And, and again, this goes to what we talked about earlier, is we have to be able to find a way um, to effectively um, teach to the masses, but on an individual basis. And I think that's where the future of golf instruction is, is going. Hopefully, it's going to keep trending there. And we're certainly going to have some technology. We're going to have some other great uh, things come in there to make certain things a little bit easier and to help us as instructors and to help the students. But ultimately, I think it's, it's going to truly become more of an, individual, an individualized uh, lesson plan, if you will, to the individual person and their experiences emotionally and physically uh, than just teaching them uh, the basics of the golf swing. Guys, I want to thank you very much. Uh, it's hard to believe that that hour just zipped right by, at least it did for me. Um, I want to thank both of you for <laughs> – uh, I want to thank both of you for coming on uh, Coach's Corner Pamphlet and I hear on Golf Talk Live. It's been a pleasure and an honor to have both of you. And very quickly, and again, I'm going to go with ladies first. Uh, Sue, if you want to just give a quick um, uh, shout-out, if you will, to let the folks know how they can reach out to you. And if you want to give another quick plug for your book, by all means, go ahead. And then, John. Yeah, thank you. It's been an honor. Um, you can you can reach me at suewegergolf.com. And, yeah, um Golf, The Last Six Inches, How to Change Your Brain, Change Your Game is definitely on Amazon. It's the number one best-selling book in six countries. We launched it a couple years ago, and it's doing phenomenal. And I do workshops all over the country. So call me if you want to do a little fun little Change Your Brain, Change Your Game workshop. That's what I do. I love doing it, especially in the summer to get out of the heat. So thank you, Ted, so much. I appreciate it. 
I appreciate it as well, Sue. Thank you as always. And again, go to sueyourgolf.com and all of our contact information is there. So, uh, and John, uh, if uh, again, you want to just uh, let the folks know how they can reach out and anything quickly that you'd like to, uh, to plug as well. Sure. Uh, Sue, uh, honor being on with you again. It's been a while since we've shared the spotlight with Ted and thank you. It's always enjoyable to listen to what you're doing. Ted, thank you as well. If you're looking to catch a hold of me, it's really simple, whether it's at or hashtag, it's John Hughes golf at the dot com. And that's my website. Uh, I am in Orlando, Florida at uh, Falcons Fire Golf Club. Most of the time I do do some programs at Streamsong Resort as well. Just got done with a program there last week. Uh, be looking for some more videos from me as the, as the summer goes on when I've got a little bit more time to put all those together. Uh, if you've got any questions that you want to see answered through video, by all means contact me. And again, Ted, thanks for the honor of being on. Appreciate it. Well, uh, again, Sue and John, thank you as always for giving of your time. I appreciate it very much. Uh, go and relax and unwind from the evening because I know you got a, another uh, full day tomorrow of, of teaching and, and helping golfers uh, become better out there. So thank you. God bless to both of you, and I'll see you next time on the Coach's Corner panel. Thanks, nice. Ted. All right, that was uh, John Hughes and Sue Weger. Uh, two great uh, golf professionals here on the Coach's Corner panel. And uh, before I bring on uh, t this evening's special guest, I'm just going to play a short clip from, uh, of course, our sponsor from the Coach's Corner panel, uh, GolfSwing.com. Are you finally ready to improve your golf game? GolfSwing.com is changing the way golfers learn online. With the largest collection of golf training programs and drills on the planet, GolfSwing.com can help you improve every part of your game. Whether you want to gain more distance, hit it closer, or just sink more putts, GolfSwing.com staff of world-class coaches can help you gain the results you need. Watch unlimited videos on any device from anywhere in the world and start playing better, scoring lower, having more fun, and saving money. Get your fix on demand at GolfSwing.com. All right, that was the sponsors I mentioned for uh, Golf Talk Live's Coaches Corner panel. Uh, golfswing.com remember to go after the show and uh, check out their great online video academy and uh, starting next week we're gonna have a very uh, special uh, offer for their website so you want to make sure you uh, uh, come back for that and I'll give you the details next week on the show all right I've got a very special guest tonight uh, Paul Albanese uh, he is one of the principals at Albanese and Lutsky Golf Course Design and Construction Management I'm gonna tell you a little bit about him if there was a word to describe Paul it is passion uh, he has a passion for golf architecture, and this passion is evident by the golf designs he has created and the dedication he shows uh, to the profession. He uh, prides himself on being able to envision concepts and transform uh, creative ideas into reality. Uh, picking up the game at age five, uh, he was a single-digit handicapper by the time he was 13, uh, but more importantly, he was fascinated by the great courses he was exposed to in northern New Jersey, uh, most notably uh, Somerset Hills, uh, Baltusrol and uh, Plainfield, just to name a few. Uh, and it was at this time that Paul thought being a golf course architect, creating classic venues around the world would be a profession that has no equal. So please welcome my very special guest this evening, Paul Albanese. Good evening, Paul, and hey. welcome to Golf Talk Live. Yeah, thanks for having me on. A pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Um, 
Paul, I want to start off just, uh, let's go back a little bit, if you will. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to read out your, your entire bio because you've got quite a bit there. So I want to give you an opportunity to, to, to brag a little bit about yourself. But um, just share a little bit more about your background, obviously where you were educated and, and, uh, and how that played a role in what you're doing now. Sure, I'd love to. And, uh, and, and you can ask any of my colleagues. Uh, we often get these, this question when we're doing our travels around the usually around the world now because that's where golf is happening. And typically if you, you're next to a passenger and they're asking you what you do and you tell them you're a golf course architect, you, inevit you inevitably get the question of, oh, wow, that's an interesting job. How did you get into that? So I, I've got my right. pat answer that I use, and uh, it, it sums it up pretty well. And, and over the years I've tried to make it something a little more interesting and a little cute. So I'll often look at the passenger next to me or whoever's asking the question, and I'll say to them, forklifts. And I'll usually get an inquisitive look at something to the effect of forklifts. <laughs> how, do, how does that relate to golf course design? And the story goes, I went to Cornell University, and I was studying engineering at the time. And myself and my classmates, third year, junior year in, in college, we went to a forklift factory. And when we got there, all of the engineers in the forklift factory and all of my classmates were super excited about forklifts. In fact, they had a passion for forklifts. And I knew at that very moment that I did not have a passion for forklifts and that I was probably going to be one of the worst forklift designers in the world if I went and continued down that path. <laughs> so I had a little epiphany. I started to do some research. I started to put some uh, things together with re really the advice of my father, who used to tell me all the time that do what you love and success will follow. So don't, you know, don't worry about the money. Don't right. do what society's telling you to do. Just do what you love. And I knew I loved golf. I was on the Cornell golf team. I was a captain there. And I knew I wasn't going to make a dime playing professional golf either. And I had this engineering degree. So I said, well, let me see if I can put these two together and try to become, you know, build these things. So I went to my advisor and I said, hey, I want to, you know, forklifts are not my thing. I want to do golf courses. And she was really great. She told me to get a landscape architecture degree. And I could not draw a lick. I was an engineer. I knew how to draw straight lines and that was it. And, but I really wanted to do this, so I went to the landscape architecture program at Cornell at the time and asked them how to go about getting a master's degree. And they said, well, you need to learn how to draw first. So I went to the drawing department in the landscape architecture program and to a, a, a colleague, not a colleague, she was a professor, Professor Paula Horgan, who, you know, you have these people throughout your life who, who become critical for how you get to where you are. And she would be probably that right. first peg. She, she was a graduate instructor in drawing and landscape architecture, and she had a full class. And here's this engineer who comes up to her and says, I want to learn to draw because I want to be a golf course designer. She could have easily told me to go pound sand. She's full. And, but she didn't. She said, you know what? I can see you really want to do this. And she put me in the corner of the class to learn how to draw with all these other graduate students. And after a full semester of learning under her tutelage, I was still the worst drawer in the class. I still could not draw very well after a full <laughs> semester. But she saw my effort. I mean, I put in so much effort. She could not get over it. She actually gave me an A in the class. And she writes me a letter of recommendation wow. for my graduate schools. And I applied to a bunch of graduate schools. And lo and behold, I still don't know how exactly it happened. I, I will probably credit her letter of recommendation because she knew a, a fellow professor there 
at Harvard University. So I got into Harvard University, and I was I was ecstatic because it's it's the, probably you know it's the top ranked landscape architecture program in the world. And I couldn't believe I got in really. And I got there, and then I got tutelage from some really incredible professors who taught me how to develop the other side of my brain. Cornell taught me how to be left-brained, you know, technical. I could build things. I could draw straight lines pretty well. But at Harvard, that's where I started to learn to think, think outside of the box, as they say. I started to think creatively. So I really attribute some of my relative success, if you will. I don't consider myself you know, super successful, but I'm a, I consider myself very lucky and successful in this business due to the fact that I have both a right brain and a left brain, a creative side and a technical side. So that's my educational background. And then after I graduated from Harvard, I, I sent my resume in 1991 to all the golf course architects in the world, everywhere. And it was the recession. <laughs> and I never, uh, right. I, I kept all these letters too. I've got a whole file full of ding letters from golf course architects, from Reese Jones to Jack Nicholas to all these big name guys who said, thank you, Paul, for your resume. It looks great, but we're not hiring. And I bring those to my society conference meetings now just to show those guys. But um, I got one letter <laughs> back, or I got one response from Jerry Matthews in Michigan, in the middle of Michigan, Lansing, Michigan. And I'm from New Jersey and, you know, went to school out on the East Coast. So for me, I had no idea really even where Michigan was. But he offered me an internship in 1992. And so I packed up my stuff, and for a summer, I came out and lived in Lansing, Michigan. And in fact, I just saw Jerry Matthews today, of all things. Jerry and I had had a little meeting today to possibly do a project together. And so 30, you know, 27 years ago, I was sitting in a room using pens and pencils, no computers, learning how to draft. And I reminded Jerry today in our meeting, I said, Jerry, you know, 27 years ago, you gave me my first opportunity to route a little golf course because I was an intern and I was doing drafting and kind of boring, you know, stuff you need to learn how to do, but not the most exciting stuff. And he gave me an opportunity in the last two weeks of my internship right. to actually route a nine hole golf course. And I, I still remember how, how gracious he was in allowing an intern to actually learn more than just the drafting. He didn't just shove me in a corner and say, draw. He said, I want, you know, you're here to learn a little bit about golf course design. So Jerry gave me my first opportunity in 1992 to route a golf course. And then the next year he hired me on full time from 93 until the present day, I've been designing golf courses uh, with different partners and different, different venues. And uh, we started, you know, I started out with Jerry as a Michigan golf course architect. We did most of our work in Michigan. And then I expanded more into most of the United States. And now our firm is doing work all over the world, really primarily a, a lot of work in Vietnam right now and a lot of work uh, internationally and nationally. So that's it in a nutshell. Wow. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I want to go back just real quick just to, to sort of raise the point because you're exactly right. You know, your father gave you some great advice. You have to be passionate um, about what you do because it really doesn't feel like a job when you feel that way. Um, it, it's, you know, it's something that you're excited about getting up doing, and it doesn't matter what it is, you know, whether in your case, it's, it's architecture, but, you know, in somebody else, it, it might be, you know, whatever it is that they're passionate about. And I think that he was exactly right. It doesn't matter what the naysayers might say. If you're passionate about something, then you're going to enjoy it and you're going to give it your best and success will definitely follow. Um, I, I want to 
mention something first um, and before I give you an opportunity to talk about some of your successes because you've obviously uh, recently been uh, awarded uh, for some projects that you have uh, uh, either been working on or had worked on, and I want to give you an opportunity to talk about them. But I want to ask you a question first before we do that. You know, when you look at, you know, when you go back over your, your career and you look at how uh, golf courses really boomed here in the United States, obviously they've, they've you know, stopped a little bit here uh, in comparison. Now we're seeing a big boom, as you said, in Vietnam and other uh, international markets uh, as they become more golf proficient. But here in the United States, it's it slowed down a little bit for a while, partially because of the recession and just, um, you know, just because golf has, has uh, demographics, demographic, excuse me, have changed a little bit. What do you see creating uh, differently now future golf courses, particularly here? Let's talk about the United States for a moment. Do you see a big change on how they're going to be approached compared to what they were maybe over the last 20 years? Uh, interesting, great question. And of course, the, our entire industry has been, you know, wrestling with this uh, issue. The ASGCA, of which I'm a member of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, we are continually at our meetings trying to come up with ideas that address the, the, the paradigm you just mentioned about what's the next 20 years going to be like. What do we do to ensure golf right. can stay sustainable? So we've all been thinking about this question, and I do have some hypotheses about how I think things will happen in the future and some ideas for where we need to go. And I think the, most, most people in the industry recognize that golf has been suffering from participation rate for a variety of reasons and how to address those right. is, is the second part of that. I mean, the reasoning is because there's, you know, people are, time is, is the most valuable resource we have now. And the weekends are no longer from like from the 1970s and 80s when I grew up in the game where men, typically men, would spend the weekend playing golf and the other kids and the moms would maybe have one or one soccer game or they would go to the pool. And that was more or less how the East Coast was growing up. Today, there is, that, that paradigm does not work anymore. It is full-fledged soccer games from dawn to dusk, yeah. travel leagues. There is just more premium on family time. And men, therefore, have and men, rightly so, have decided to spend more time with their families versus spending it on the golf course. So one of the things that we're trying to figure out is how can we bring families to the golf course, where the change change the paradigm from men only on weekends to making golf a family sport, and how to let the entire family play the game on the weekend so it can be enjoyed together. So that's one thing I see. The other one is speed and pace of play and the, the old paradigm of being able to take six hours, five to six hours. That includes getting there, getting your shoes on, having maybe, you know, a refreshment after, you know, it's a six hour event. If you're going to play 18 holes, five hours, most likely five to six hours. And that just, that's too long for most people to say for an activity. And, and if they're going to do it, they'll maybe do it once, but they're not going to do right. it multiple times in a month. So the idea of being able to get quick fixes of golf, to have more instant gratification, which, again, ties into what more younger people are looking for today, where they want, to, they want to be gratified more instantly. They want some quicker feedback with their entertainment. Smartphones, if you see how they play on video games and smartphones, they all want that kind of excitement. And golf is a little bit more of a game of patience. 
Well, how do we start to make maybe make some trends that would allow for a little more speed of play issues? And if you look at one of the most successful venues in the golf industry right now, and I think everyone recognizes it, is Top Golf. Top Golf is doing great. Right. And the reason they're doing so well, one of the reasons, is they, is they took a page out of our traditional golf book, the shot, and they they just focused on that, and they they built an entire program and and profit center around the shot. You hit it out there, and if it goes in the target, lights ring, bells ring, points are awarded, and people love that. Young people are enjoying the top golf experience because you don't have to spend five or six hours doing it. You can have that fun and have a good time with somebody, not to mention who doesn't need to learn the game proficiently in order to have fun. And that's another facet of why golf has been struggling to some degree. It's a difficult game by its very nature. And to play on a full-fledged golf course is a tough thing to do unless you've had, you know, some lessons or you've been to the range a few times. So Top right. Golf has taken a page from traditional golf and has capitalized on it. And I've written a few articles about how we should take a page from Top Golf's book and try to capitalize on that in the golf operations end of things or even the design end of things. And those are what we're trying to figure out now is how do we take a page from Top Golf and bring it back to traditional golf? Is there maybe some way we can have smartphones on the golf course that allow you to integrate that kind of fun with the shots you're having? There's a lot of thoughts and ideas out there about that. I think it needs to happen. I think we need to attract people who want one or two hours to play golf back to a regular golf course, have different pricing structures, different ways to go about it. And on that note, I'd like to give a, a little plug here for something that I think is a real strong uh, idea in this, in, in this arena. I recently, just re very recently, have been having some talks and trying to figure out how this part of the sport can work. And it's called, uh, it, I like to compare it to, the snow, to snowboarding and skiing. And there's a, there's a group out there called speed golfers. And I, I don't, I've never played speed mm -hmm. golf. And I'm curious as to how that, that kind of game, speed golf, where they combine your score and running and, and, the, and playing the golf course literally in a run like the biathlon does with skiing and shooting. It's golf and running. Right. It's a combination. It's taking off in certain parts of the country. I've never played it, and I happened to run across it in my golf travels, and I contacted the guys over there, and they, they're very excited about having a golf architect you know, come on board and try to see what they can do. And, and I think ideas like that, I don't know, you know, speed golf, I, I do hope takes off and becomes a right. popular sport and helps golf operators maybe fill their tee times in the mornings and the evenings, which is what speed golf intends to do. So I think there's um, opportunities like that. My, as I've been talking to the speed golf guys, my brain keeps going toward how can we kind of have a hybrid between pure speed golf and traditional golf that in a way allows golfers just to play the game faster. I mean, speed of play, when you sit out there and watch golfers line up two foot putts, because that's what they see the guys on Sunday doing and, and it just becomes monotonous. That, that's turning people away yeah. from our game, and and we got to stop that. Yeah, you're you're exactly right, Paul. Let me a, a quick thought on what you were just talking about. Um, you know, I'm in the golf business as well. I'm a, a teaching professional as well as doing the programs that I do, and even I yawn 
watching golf on Sundays. Mm, now, right. I, I didn't on the Masters this year because I was excited for Tiger. But, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and I've been around the golf business for, for a long, long time. I, I want to add something, though, and, and, you know, and I don't know whether – I'm sure it's feasible, anything's feasible these days, but something just to add on to – you know, because you talked about, you know, taking a smartphone or what have you around on the golf course, but something that, that could be done with technology nowadays, I could even envision uh, built into the golf course, strategically placed sensors in ground sensors yep. Yep, that could no be identified through apps. And what I could see making the game interesting, especially for, for younger people, but, but anybody really that wants to participate is again you're playing a traditional round of golf, but obviously we know golf is is based on targets. You know we shoot we hit the ball to a specific target in order to create opportunities. And if you created a, a format where these particularly strategically placed sensors were in ideal positions throughout each hole, if your ball is hit into one of these censored areas, you earn a point. And at the end of your round, based on the points earned, maybe you could have offer something, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily monetary, whatever, but uh, even knock strokes off. You know, so many points earns you a stroke it. off your round. So it, it gives – do you understand what I'm saying? Because, I mean, technology no, is now you just, that you, you can very easily do something. <laughs> I mean, you think about it. The younger generation are all – That's a great idea. Yeah. And I, I'm giving that free to anybody that's listening. Anybody wants to go out, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna copyright it or anything. Just go out and have at it. But, but you know what I'm saying. There's a lot of uh, technological advances that we could do that would make it again more interesting. And uh, you're exactly right about Top Golf. They've taken uh, a, a unique part of the game, and 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 I say this respectfully uh, about Top Golf. They have basically taken the bowling alley concept of. Yeah. Um, people going out and having a good time, a social uh, event, if you will, they've just plugged in golf instead of bowling. And again, I mean that not in a disrespectful way, but essentially that's what Top Golf is. It's not just out there hitting the golf ball, but it's a social thing. There's, there's food, there's drink, there's other activities that go on within uh, there. And that's really what they've done is they've turned it into a social thing. Uh, and again, it doesn't have to be four hours. You can go out for an hour, you can go out for two hours, whatever it is you want to commit to. So, again, it opens it up uh, to a whole different demographic that maybe at some point down the road wants to uh, transition into a more traditional golf, but at least it exposed them to the game, and they've done a fantastic job uh, in doing so. Um, as I mentioned a moment yeah, ago, I, I want you, you to go should, back you and talk that. about uh, – <laughs> You I'm should sure copyright your idea, by the way, because I think that's, that. I, that, uh, that will definitely be something but, I think happens in the future. I think you actually just – I didn't even think of that, but that is a fantastic idea because I was trying to figure out exactly well, how we could take a page from Top Golf, and I think you figured it out. Well, I mean, I think it's very easily uh, doable. I mean, you know, technology nowadays, and you don't have to worry about things getting wet. or I mean, sensors can be – uh, encompassed in in you know uh, uh, plastics and and whatnot, uh, you know put in the ground. They can have multiple uh, you know targets throughout the golf. And again, each one uh, obviously uh, a more um, you know the better uh, shot, if you will, is going to put you in in position A and position B and you know C and so forth. And you earn different point things. And you can have uh, all kinds of things. You can also really have two games within one. You can have the actual stroke play game 
but then you can also have based on the sensor uh, you could have a game within a game, which would make it very okay. interesting, particularly for the younger generation. So, anyways, well, if you, wanna, if you didn't copyright that, your... if you didn't copyright that, I am copywriting that right now. Okay, I, I am going to take you that. Go ahead, that, Paul. That that is a fantastic Paul, go idea. Go ahead. I'm going to work on that. Well, I just love remember, it. just men- just mention my name when it when it comes out. I will. That's all I ask. All right. So I want to go back it. on to uh, talk about. Um, I want to talk about a couple of things, uh, you know, here that uh, you've been doing. As I mentioned, you've, you've recently gotten some award uh, for projects, uh, Tatanka and Sweetgrass, just to name a few. Talk about those. Tell us what was unique about those uh, particular venues uh, that that got you those awards. Sure. Yeah, uh, Tatanka and Sweetgrass. Well, what's what's similar about both of them is they were both for Native American tribes, and I've done. I've done three golf course, I've three built projects for Native American tribes, but I've got four or five master plans also with some other tribes. And I, I like working with Native American tribes. I find them very inspirational to work with. They, they've got a great history and heritage uh, that they yep. all embrace. They, they have a tremendous respect for the land, which fits very well with the idea of, of, of the golf course design philosophy that I personally embody, which is to really – be friendly to the, you know, environmentally conscious, not put my own ego onto the land, but let the land do the talking. And, and, and that fits very well with the Native American tribal heritage and, and their principles as well. And one of the things that I've done at both Sweetgrass and at Tatanka, and the thing I always put a, a disclaimer and a preamble about this to ensure that it's not done in a Disney-like way, not done in a kitschy way. Right is we try to take the stories and the history and the legends from the tribe and utilize those mm-hmm. as inspiration for the design, much like a painter would have an inspiration for a painting and, or, or even an abstract painting. You know, if you ever see abstract painting, there's always a description on the side, and you know, you'll typically look at the painting, and, and you'll have to, you can often never figure out how the, the inspiration of the painting is translated into that painting. It looks nothing like what it says, but that was the inspiration behind the artist's work. So we try to do the same thing with golf course design using the Native American tribal legends and history as inspiration for the mm-hmm. golf course forms, how things look out there. And we don't do things like if, if the story has something to do with a, a, a bear or a turtle, you know, you're, we're not going to just slap a turtle down and call it, you know, that, that to me is not, not good design. Right. Good design is we look at that no. story and we, we extrapolate and it becomes an abstract painting, so to speak, on the ground. But it really does generate some very unique forms. And what we have found is that the, the tribal members also find it very inspirational that their golf course has been inspired by their history and culture. So right. I'm always proud when we go to the opening day at Tatanka and we went to Sweetgrass that the people that came out for the opening day, the majority of them weren't even golfers. They were, they were just mm-hmm. part of the tribe who had heard about the design and were very proud of it. So I like doing that from a design standpoint. And then secondly, what we've done on both of those courses is we actually utilize the Native American tribal labor as part of our crew. So they're not only in, the course is not only inspired by their history, but it's built by their people. Right. We use their people to help right. build the golf course. We bring in our specialists, but we utilize their labor, and, and they find that very pride-inspiring as well, and, and I do. I'm always very proud of that. 
as well. So, yeah, and, and they've won awards. So yeah, that's obviously that's it's fantastic worked because the, the magazines like it. So, yeah, we're proud of them. Yeah, and that, and that, I think that's yeah, yeah, I think that's a great approach too, really, because you know, uh, again, you don't want to just sort of copy um, the heritage and you know slap up a few signs and say, okay, this is such and such run right. or this is you know the bear trap or whatever. Again, a lot of courses have done that, and and you know all power to them. But you know you're taking it a step further, and the fact that using many of their own uh, tribe members in order to participate in the actual development and building of the course, I think is fantastic as well. Um, another one yeah, also I want to mention Sage Run course, the Island Resort Casino is another one uh, that recently opened. And tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, well that's uh, that's the second course uh, for the Island Resort and Casino, but owned by the Hannibal Indian. Uh, community in in uh, Wilson, Michigan, which is just outside of Escanaba, Michigan, and I didn't mention them because we haven't it hasn't really had a chance to win the awards yet. Uh, our hope is that it will it'll gain some good positive press this summer uh, for the most part. Um, it also was designed on a piece of land that was completely different than the first one. And well, I first like to say this is the second course I've done. Sweetgrass was the first one, and Sage Run was the second one for these clients. And I, there's no bigger, no bigger honor, really. Uh, I'm humbled by the idea that they hired me again to do the second golf course because that's, right. that's really what you're looking for as an architect is that your client is so happy with the first one you did that they hired you to do the second one. So uh, the leaders there hired me to do the second one. They called it Sage Run. It's a completely different style and look than Sweetgrass, which was really nice and will really be great for golfers. Now, when they visit the resort, they'll be able to have – an experience at Sweetgrass, which is really an open golf course, what I would call a prairie style, if you will. It's very few trees on Sweetgrass. And then you head over to Sage Run, and it's, mm-hmm. it's up and down and over and across a drumlin, which has trees on it. And it's, it, the topography is 180 degrees different than Sweetgrass. So there's two different experiences. And I really like what we did at Sage Run. Uh, one of the main guys there, Tony Mancia, who's the general manager, uh, he and I – collaborated on what we thought was, you know, the style we wanted. And Tony and I had gone to Ireland uh, many years ago, and we played Royal County Down, and we loved the, the, the rough and rugged bunkers that were at Royal County Down. So we figured this would be a nice opportunity because the site was rough and rugged, that we were going to make these bunkers out at Sage Run have, have that same rough and rugged appearance and look and, and style. So the bunkering I'm really proud of at Sage Run. I like the routing. It utilizes this wonderful landform in the middle of the property. I, you know, I'm excited to see golfers play it this spring and summer and uh, see what their feedback is. Well, and, and, and again, you know, it goes back to what you said at the beginning, you know, when you have a passion and a love for something, you know, you can really kind of get jazzed up about it. You know what I mean? If you can really, you know, your, your mind sort of opens up and thinks of all of these great ideas and how to take something and and literally turn it into a masterpiece. You know, one of the things that I've always admired about golf courses, I mean, it's not just the playing, but it's just the 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 overall beauty. I mean, there's some incredible golf courses. I mean, it's just amazing, you know, when you look at them, um, you know, whether it be an overhead shots or, or what have you, and just the thought process that had to go, you know, behind it in order to create that um, is just amazing. So I can understand that, you know, someone like yourself that, that ha- truly has a passion for it, um, how you can, you know, get up in the morning and be very excited about going out and creating some of these new developments. And, and you know, obviously there's a trend here that's happening. You've obviously uh, developed a niche, as you said, 
um, you know, for working with a lot of the Indian reservations is something you've, you've developed a passion for. Um, and obviously you're, what you're providing them is something that's attractive to them. It's not just a matter of building a golf course, but you're, you're, you know, building a, a beautiful facility for them to, uh, to use and, and, uh, patrons that visit use, but you're also, uh, acknowledging and helping them to, uh, perpetuate their legacy and, and their traditions along the way. So it's something that they can, you know, for generations talk about with, um, you know, some of the younger uh, members of their tribes as they grow old and say, this is, you know, a course and here's some of the, the thought process that went behind it. So it's not just a golf course. There's a lot more, as you said, uh, behind it. Um, where do you see, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but, you know, golf course design has obviously evolved a lot over the last 25 years you know, we saw a lot of these big, beautiful resort courses and things that, that popped up for, for quite a while here, particularly in the United States, and you're seeing it obviously going over. How much of a role does the technology play today? Um, obviously, you know, computer uh, imagery and that helps you considerably in developing in that, but um, you obviously have to have the thought in your mind uh, sort of grassroots, if you will, and then you know, in old times, you 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 know, drew the lines and you sketched it out yourself. Now, obviously, you have computer enhancement to be able to help you do it a little bit more efficiently. But does it play a big role today, uh, as much as it does, you know, computers do in other um, uh, areas of of life? Uh, yeah, good question. And it's funny how you mentioned technology, and I thought you were going to go down the road of how is technology affecting golf design i.e. The, the technology of golf clubs and golf balls and how that's affected golf course design. And that's a whole – we can talk about that topic later on if you want to go down that road. And, uh, you know, we can get up on our soapboxes about how that's affected golf design is, is the technology of the golf ball and the golf <laughs> club has created, has created some difficulties with us in golf design. But with regard to our own technology for how we utilize computers – and, yeah, as I mentioned, I was meeting with Jerry Matthews today, and I started with him 27 years ago, and we didn't have any of the CAD stuff. It was all hand-drawn, and, and now we do everything with GPS and, and AutoCAD, and we can do things today that took us hours to do in the past. We can do much quicker now. And I've answered this question before about where, where and how that benefits us as architects and designers, and here's really where it does. The fact that we're able, there's only so many hours that any creative person puts toward a creative project. And so you have to budget those hours into what you can do to be the, to make that final product the most creative thing you can do. But if it takes you 25% of your budget to do something that is not particularly creative, but it's needed, drawing some lines, doing things on an you know, paper that you need to do just to get it done. If you can do that 25%, if that now can be reduced down to 5 or 10% of the time because of technology, which is what we've seen. In fact, it's probably a bigger jump. Technology has allowed us to really not spend much time on, on things that are not necessarily creative. Well, presuming you still take the same amount of hours to do the project, which you should because you're getting paid about the same, then you can take the rest of those hours and put it more toward creative endeavors. So, yes, we've got the same amount of hours to do this, but we don't spend nearly as much doing things that are not creative. So I spend more time now being able to enhance an idea. I can spend more time in the budget to spend on site to do more site work, which is really 
one of the best places to be creative in a golf course design project is on the site. So technology has allowed us to spend more of the hours during a creative process truly being creative. So that's, that's what the way I would say it's most benefited us. Yeah. And, and, and I can see how that would, um, you know, like anything be, be beneficial for the industry overall. And, and I want to, you know, talk a little bit about what, what you had suggested um, about the equipment and, and the ball uh, as well. How has that affected? And, and, you know, cause we always hear from the manufacturer side, we always hear from the player side, but I'd like to hear it from your side. How has it affected the um, advancements of technology of equipment and, and the golf ball? Uh, has it affected uh, the golf course design business? I think it's I think it's been a bit of big effect, and and mostly to the detriment, I would say. Uh, I know the the goal right. of a lot of of the better clubs, and I have no problem with getting clubs better for the average golfers who you know are trying to learn the game and it's a difficult game so we want to make it easier for them to to get involved and not be so frustrated so that that's the part of the technology that I think is beneficial that I'm, I'm glad happened I do get I get concerned as as from a standpoint of the classics I I, I love the history of the game I do look at these old golf courses like wonderful works of art, Augusta National and all the classics that you mentioned early in the show that I grew up playing on the East Coast. To me, those are like Van Gogh and Picasso paintings. And due to the technology of the golf ball and the driver, they are no longer being able to be played as they were originally designed. I mean, Tillinghast, Ross, Mackenzie, those guys did not design those courses to be driver half wedge on the majority of the holes that, that better golfers now are able to do. The idea that Donald yeah. Ross had in his mind for somebody to hit a driver and a mid iron, that's the design. That's what we should be trying to emulate. And through technology, we have completely dismissed in many cases, the original design intent of the architect. And if you really just boil it down to that, it just seems absolutely wrong to do. He intended you to hit a long iron to this green. Why are we now hitting wedges? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, and that's a great point, uh, Paul, because, you know, as somebody who, who, you know, teaches the game, you know, I have to sort of rethink my process as well as players get better and especially some of the younger players that can, you know, belt at a mile. Um, they're basically eliminating half of the clubs in their bag. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's gotten to the point now where, you know, it's all about distance. That's the mindset that comes in. It's no longer, you know, I want to be a better ball striker and I want to be able to score better. It's I want to hit it farther. I want to hit it farther. Absolutely. Well, you know, you're already hitting it. You know, you're already hitting it 280 yards. I mean, you know, you can pretty much play most golf courses. Um, You know, so uh, unfortunately, and, and this is also an area that you may or may not have thought of yourself, but it's also been to the detriment of the game in itself, not so much on the golf course, but what it's done is this sort of mindset of, you know, distance, distance, distance. You're not getting players anymore. Your average person doesn't go out there. They're not a player. They don't know how to play the game. It's all about bombing it out there as far as they can. They don't care where it goes. 
um, you know, as long as they can keep playing it. And they're not really thinking about strategy. They're not thinking about enjoying the golf course. They just want to belt it out a mile. And when they're not able to achieve that, then they get caught in this loop of, well, I got to buy the next best driver out there. Maybe that'll help my game. So their mindset is shifting from what do I do to improve to what do I need to get in order to help me achieve that. So it's it, it's very been very effective marketing by the manufacturing, uh, you know, golf equipment and, and golf balls. And I don't want to go on a tangent here, but you know, it, it's actually hurt our business as instructors because teaching the game has become more difficult through technology in some ways uh, and advancements of equipment because now we're teaching uh, from a standpoint of how do we get them to get more distance. And that's good to a point, but first I want you to be able to play better and have more enjoyment. <laughs> and that's why people don't enjoy the game. Think about it. They're not enjoying the game because, there's, I mean, the, the stats don't lie. Over 50% of all golfers out there can't break 100. Yep. That's, no, you – that's, that's not a very, very impressive I've never, I've never heard this. No, this is a I, – I, you know, and, I've always looked at it from a golf design standpoint. I've never heard and, about and, it from an instructor standpoint. Right. And, and, and don't get me wrong. You know, we're, we're, we're teaching a lot of different things, but it's all about spin rate, and it's all about this, and it's about that. And the truth of the matter is none of that matters – if you can't hit the ball down the fairway. Right. And, you know, and it goes, it goes back to, you know, what we talked about earlier, um, what we you know with the strategy. Um, the other thing I want to do is, is I want to ask you about golf course designers today. Um, what are you doing that will, and that sort of piggybacks on what we just talked about that are going to ensure we're still playing this game in 50 years, because as you mentioned earlier, you know, time restrictions have come in. Um, and, you know, the question I asked at the very beginning of you is, you know, how do we change or do we change, excuse me, the design of golf courses today compared to what they've been over the last 20, 25 years, where it has been these big, beautiful golf courses because people just don't have the time anymore. So what are, what is your industry doing or what do you think, and I know you talked about some of them, but is there specific things that you guys are thinking about now saying we need to do something or we need to make some changes or, you know, this industry is going to just collapse because people just don't have four or five, six hours anymore. What are you doing or what do you yeah. think could help uh, make those changes? Right. And, and yes, as you said, I, I hit upon these a little bit in the previous segments. Uh, it's a combination of all those. I think the, one of the key things is we all recognize that it is a problem and that something has to happen and that we need to do something. So, you know, that's the key right there is knowing that there's an issue and, and what the issue is. And I think we have narrowed it down to mostly time, some money and the difficulty of the game. So trying to create venues that you can play faster, that don't cost as much and are friendly to play are not too demoralizing is what I see is the key to keeping this game viable for the next 50 years. So we, we need more facilities like that. We do need the golf ball and the technology, I think, needs to go hand in glove with this to some degree. Um, so those are the two big components that I see. The ASGCA has, has, has created a program for any developers. And, in fact, I got 
picked to work with one of these developers that are willing to create what we call alternative facilities, we've coined it as, that are facilities that are not your typical 18-hole regulation golf course. So any developer out there that is looking to do something like this can contact the ASGCA. They'll put you in touch with an architect. And through a program we've set up through Toro, who I believe sponsors it as part of their sponsorship of the ASGCA, they will, you can have an architect come out to your facility and do a preliminary type of concept, very you know, basic stuff to see if you have the opportunity to create an alternative facility. And that alternative facility is the type of facility that I think will help the sustainability of the, of the sport for hopefully the next, you know, for the next millennia, really. We'd like this to last for as long as it's lasted already. Right. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, and, and lastly, what I want to ask you is, Let's go out of the U.S. for for a moment, and you know you mentioned obviously now you're you're working on an international scale. What are some of the trends that you're seeing? Uh, are they trends that were you know happening here in the U.S. again 10, 20, maybe 30 years ago that are because they're newer markets? Um, that's the direction they're going, or what are you seeing a trend uh, in some of the, the foreign lands that you're working on? Yes, uh, you had, you're you're very astute in your and your guests there about <laughs> what they what in Vietnam specifically, which is where I'm doing a lot of work. I, it, it's, it's uncanny. I feel like I'm in a little bit of a time machine and going back to my high school college days of the eighties and nineties, because that is the, that is how the golf world is in those areas. It is, it, it is more of a sport of the, the well-to-do and, and it, they don't have that mid-level or low-level facilities at this point. They really are the higher end facilities. Uh, pri- more private, semi-private resort type complexes, and that is how the game started in the in the United States. And then eventually, you know, there was the mid-level and the and the, the other type of courses that allowed more golfers to play. So I see them heading in that direction. And in fact, I will often warn them to not do what we did in the United States, which you know, to overbuild, to not right. do your due diligence with regard to markets, not to get too irrationally exuberant to. And, and, and hurt the game by overbuilding and not putting in enough facilities for more golfers to play. So I'm, I'm always, in, in fact, I just had a conversation with one of my Vietnamese clients about designing and creating a golf course facility for the more middle to even, you know, lower end uh, economic stratus to be able to play the game so that those people can start to fill in the golf market in a, in a more stratified way, which is what I think needs to happen in a golf market versus just one segment. So, but they are, you know, definitely going in a way that I would like to recommend them doing it a little differently than we did it here in the United States in the eighties and nineties. You know, something that I've often thought about, and, you know, I remember I go back to when I first learned to play the game, Paul, um, you know, my father, uh, as, as many in my generation did, uh, you know, their fathers took them out and taught them how to play the game, and, and then, you know, they went from there. Um, but my father took me to what traditionally was called a, an executive course, um, which was not your full-fledged, uh, you know, member's uh, course. It was just a local, um, you know, executive course where you might have had a couple of par fours or what would be classified as a par four, and the rest were pretty much... Um, you know, they might call it a par three course, but 
And that's where he taught me the game. He wouldn't take me to the country club until he felt I was comfortable enough and confident enough uh, and had a certain ability. And I wonder, you know, they talk about wanting to get future generations into the game and they're talking about time. And, and one thing I came up with, and again, you know, some areas I know it'd be very difficult because of population and things like that, but where I could see uh, another avenue is to build courses like that and build them within close proximity of, you know, universities as an example, because, you know, the university kids would love to do that, but they don't have time to go out and, and play four or five hours, but maybe a nine hole executive course that's just down the street that they can get away. And, and maybe if they've got a period or two off, they can go and play nine holes in, in less than two hours. Um, and again, if you make it, uh, you know, add some other thing, you know what I'm saying? Um, because that way yes. it gives them the exposure. It's very, very affordable because they're, listen, let's be honest. They're on a budget. They're paying, you know, exorbitant fees to, to attend their classes. Um, so they don't have a lot of disposable income and they don't have a lot of time. But if you had, um, you know, even six hole courses that are small enough that are not taking up great land masses, but that can still be designed in such a way to make them kind of, I hate to use this word, but funky looking, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it. That's appealing to the kids, um, and put them near and put them near university, uh, you know, within close proximity, and even uh, even some high schools. And the reason I, I, I choose those two uh, areas is because obviously uh, at the elementary level it's it's a little bit more difficult and, and time management. But uh, for high school and certainly university campuses, uh, these kids that have periods off, they can go out and and uh, and, and play a few holes, uh, you know. And and again, it's not taking up. It's a very cost-effective golf opportunity uh, for the land developer as well, because it's not taking up as much land. It's not as expensive, um, and it's easier to develop and easier to, uh, you know, map out for you guys as well. So that's just something else I'm throwing out there that I think might be uh, helpful uh, for the the game in, in general, because I think the game does need to make. Uh, some shifts, and I, I agree with what you said earlier about overseas. Uh, I think that they've got to be mindful to learn from what's happened here in the United States. And I'm not saying it's all bad, but there was a trend uh, that went on for quite a while, where you know bigger was better, and who has the. I mean, I I can think of a golf course that's about 30 miles from me, and at one time it was the the longest track in Florida. Well, it's not anymore, but that was what they boasted about, and it's great. But you know, a lot of people can't play it. It's just too difficult. So, you know, there has to be some some different approaches into the game. Uh, what do you think about that? I think that's your second excellent uh, idea <laughs> on the podcast about this whole concept. Yeah, I mean, it, and I agree with you specifically about the tying it into schools and universities. I mean, those are the venues yeah. that I think need it the right. most. They, as you said, they can't afford the time or the money. So these alternative facilities are perfect to go there. Why the, how they could tie into a high school gym class curriculum, just like soccer. And exactly. Things, you, know, you, you see the, they, the, the gym teachers are all teaching the basics of baseball, football, soccer. To have a facility where they could take them relatively close and teach the game of golf to high schoolers yep. should happen. And that would allow the game to grow. I, I, I'm sure of it. And that's another great idea. Okay, well, just like I said, make sure you spell my name correctly when you uh, when you copyright that one. That's right. As well, um, but uh, but you know, you know, this is where again, and, and to go back and give them credit, this is where Top Golf came out with an idea, 
and, and again, I know some naysayers may say, well, it's not really traditional golf and it's just, you know, an amusement type thing. And yeah, that's exactly what they wanted. That's, they wanted to have a fun environment for the younger generation. They're hoping uh, at some point that some of them, there are certainly not all of them, may transition or take an interest. Um, but the thing is, if we don't get them interested in the game in whatever form or level, then as the baby boomers and the next generation come up, golf is going to gradually die off because unfortunately the only exposure that most people have that didn't grow up in the game of golf is what they see on television. And that's the PGA, the LPGA tour and the various tours, the elite golfers. They don't see Joey down the street or John or Sally or what have you. Um, that's not what their imagery of golf is. It's an elitist sport. It's, you know, um, you know, it, it's something it's that's out of reach and on it's inter- yeah, yeah, it's, it's entertainment. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's all exactly. going to be as you watch it on the weekend. Yeah. Yeah, and and but you want to be able to create a platform that gets people out uh, and interested. So uh, again, Top Golf has found a market for them, and obviously it can overlap and and with other markets. But you know, I, I think just. All kidding aside, going back to what I said earlier, uh, you know, about putting the sensors out in the golf course, I think that would be a great idea. That would be very something very interesting for a lot of the younger generation and older as well. Um, that could add a little bit of spark to a game that some of them, let's be honest, can find boring at times. It would make it very interesting, and there's a lot of different varieties and ways that they could utilize that technology to make it fun and interesting um, because we've got the technology now. Um, you know, so it's just a matter of implementing it in some way that would make it fun and interesting. And uh, again, uh, you know, and I don't want to take away from, from what you do and, and building some great uh, tracks out there, but there also has to be a balance, I think, where we're also building some more uh, affordable and maybe smaller um, uh, venues, if you will, that can expose the next generations to the game at a cost-effective way and a less time-consuming way. Um, in order to keep them interested. Otherwise, we're going to, uh, you know, another 10, 20 years down the road, uh, I think the golf industry is going to be in trouble. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, if, if, if we don't do the things that you're describing there and that I agree with, there won't be an opportunity for me to design, you know, what you would consider higher, you know, the longer tracks, the championship tracks, the ones you might play a professional tournament on. Yes, those are great. But I would, I know we need the type of facilities you're talking about in order to maybe have the once in a while being able to design something like I did at Sage Run or Tatanka. But to be able to design those, we need what you just described first and foremost. Yeah. Otherwise, there will be no opportunities well, to do this. It, it, it's a, yeah. yeah, Paul, it's a stepping stone is the way I look at it. You know, I, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, and some of the best memories that I have of golf was when my father took me out to that golf course because – to me, I had no idea. I mean, at that age, I was, you know, six, seven years old. I had no idea that this wasn't a country club. To me, it was just a golf course. That's where we went. We hit a few balls out in the range. He taught me some things. And then we went out and played. And, you know, he taught me as we went around. And it was very, um, you know, less stressful for me because, you know, mm-hmm. it was not this, uh, you know, high-end country club. But at the same time, you know, it gave me some great, uh, you know, obviously time to spend with my father and things like that. But um, it was a great way to learn the, the sport. And unfortunately, um, and I'm not saying there aren't facilities out there like that, but there's not as many as I think there needs to be. And, and again, 
we're now in a competitive, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, you've got things like soccer and other sports that are competing for, you know, your kid's time. And golf is, is sort of, you know, flailing in the wind because not everybody mm-hmm. wants to necessarily play competitive golf in a junior league. Uh, and those are great to have too. Um, but that seems to be all they're churning out. So we've got to find some other ways to let, you know, uh, the regular folks, if you will, that just want to go out and have some fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, if you use a skiing analogy, we can't all be designing black diamonds. We got to have a, a fair share of, blue, right. you know, blue squares and, and green triangles yep. and allow people to enjoy the different types of golf. And otherwise it's just going to all be black diamonds and that's not a sustainable facility. No. And, and it goes back and just to use it again, the, the uh, instructional um, analogy, you know, I talked about earlier before you came on with, uh, with my panel tonight, one of the, you know, one of the problems and fortunately in the golf industry, they're starting to recognize this or have been for a few years now, but you know, everybody was sort of being put in the same box. You know, you come in, you came for golf lessons, and everybody was sort of taught the same thing. And I don't mean, you know, the basic fundamentals, the grip, but, you know, we're all individuals. We're all different. And you have to – you can't, you know, teach everybody to stack and tilt, and you can't teach everybody, you know, the A swing or the B swing or whatever it happens to be because it doesn't necessarily fit for everybody. One size does not fit all in golf um, because we're all built differently and we all think differently. So, you know, there are certain basic fundamentals, but if you look at the golfers, you know, during Nicholas and Trevino and, and that era, they didn't all swing exactly the same. There were certain components within the golf swing that have to be there, like the impact position and so forth. But essentially, I mean, you know, again, I use him as an example. Look at Lee Trevino. I don't remember too many people that swung like him on tour, but yet he was a champion. So, you know, this, again, shows the individuality. So I think as an industry mm-hmm. – uh, you know, for my profession, we have to look at um, the individual, and it's going to be the same thing in yours. We have to start thinking of not just the elite players, the country club players, but we've got to think about, you know, the kids at the local high school or the kids at the university or the next generations coming up. What are they interested in? What would they want to do? They're not necessarily looking, thinking about playing out in the PGA Tour or the LPGA Tour. They just want to go out and have fun with their friends, and they're going to go where the entertainment is, and right now that's something like Top Golf and uh, some of these other venues, but the regular golf uh, courses have to be able to compete with that, and they can't just keep slashing their prices in hopes to get people come That's out. Right. They've got to be a little bit more inventive and a little bit more, a little bit more creative. Well, Paul, I hate to say this, but we're out of time. Uh, I've, I've really, really <laughs> enjoyed our conversation tonight, and uh, I hope I didn't get too much on my soapbox. But uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's a, a very interesting component of the game, and I enjoyed hearing. Uh, somebody in your end of the profession uh, share your viewpoints, Matt. And I hope you come back and join me again. I'd really love to have you come back. Oh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I could talk golf design for hours. So I appreciate the invitation and then absolutely love to come back and talk more. Well, Paul, why don't you just very uh, quickly, if you want to just uh, share with the folks, uh, for those that maybe, because uh, I get a lot of, uh, not just the regular folks, but I get people in the golf industry as well that tune into my broadcast. Uh, if you want to share how they can reach out and contact uh, your group, uh, maybe if they're interested in, in learning a little bit more about golf course design or uh, maybe have some projects of their own that they might need your assistance on, how can they go out and contact you guys? Oh, great. Uh, well, yeah, the best place probably is our website, uh, golf, G-O-L-F hyphen designs, D-E-S-I-G-N-S. Remember the S at the end, golf-designs.com. 
And uh, you can find us on Twitter as well and, and Facebook. So uh, we got our, our pages on there. So, you know, Google Albanese and Lutsky on Facebook or Twitter or our website. And feel free to contact me. I'd love to uh, talk to any of your audience members out there. I appreciate it. Well, Paul, again, thank you very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. And, uh, again, I'd love to have you come back again sometime in the near future and, and we can talk about some of your other uh, projects that you've got on the go. And, and uh, maybe you can even bring uh, one of your clients on and, and talk about that's maybe uh, you've done some work for and we can get their perspective uh, on the designs as well. But I appreciate you sharing your time with me this evening, and uh, I thank you very much. Thank you. I look forward to it. I, I will definitely come back. All right. Thanks, Paul. All right. That was my very special guest, Paul Albanese of Albanese and Lutsky uh, Golf Course Design. Uh, very interesting uh, perspective uh, on the game and, and certainly uh, had some uh, interesting thoughts uh, uh, about uh, where the uh, the industry is going and, and obviously uh, very passionate about what he's doing. So I uh, appreciate him coming on the show tonight. Uh, don't forget to join me next week. Uh, I'll have another a uh, great group on the Coach's Corner panel and another interesting guest uh, for you to listen to, so I hope you'll join me. Uh, and uh, also on uh, Tuesday, don't forget to tune in to uh, the Women of Golf show with my good friend LPGA professional Cindy Miller and I, where we will host the uh, winner of uh, this week's, uh, or this weekend, rather, uh, Symmetric Tour event, and we'll have another uh, interesting guest to follow. So I hope you'll join us. Anyways, God bless everybody. Have a great weekend, and happy Mother's Day to all you great moms out there. I love you, Mom. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts or listen on any of the following social media platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.